So when was the last time you said, wow, that would be a game changer? If only this would happen. If only I could get this, it would totally change everything. So when it happened, was it really as big a game changer as you thought it would be? Or have you just moved on to thinking about something else that would be the game changer you need? Maybe you've come to the point of of being cynical. There is even such a thing as a game changer. As you most likely know, I moved to Alberta just over six years ago and people from Alberta would often ask me, what's the difference between living in BC and living in Alberta? Well, I've had a number of answers to that question, but this week I came up with another insight on that one. In Alberta, every single year, what unites Albertans, well, Edmontonians, what unites Edmontonians is the belief, the hope that this year, some move, some trade, the Oilers will make will be a game changer. And once again, we can call ourselves the city of champions, right? The difference between BC and Edmonton is that BC moved past that long ago. They just stopped believing in game changers. It's just a lot easier to stop hoping when your hope never comes true. As we entered this season called COVID, we started hearing early on, well, you know, when we discover a vaccine, that will be a game changer. But as time goes on, we hear all kinds of qualifying statements, tempering messaging like, you know, let, let's hope, but it may not be quite as big of a game changer, as quick of a game changer as we are wanting. Isn't that life? And for some of us, the only thing that keeps us going in our faith life is this realization that nothing else is working. And, and at least at times, this seems to work for a while, but we've given up that it will ever really make the difference in this life that we had hoped. Or, and it seems to me that many of us really believe God is the difference, but we're still looking for some game-changing way to make faith work in life. We get to the point with God, with church, that we, well, that we get with, okay, the city. Your frustration about something builds to the point you call City Hall or some provincial government department. You let them know that you've submitted a ticket. And you've heard nothing. You get, you get a nothing answer and asked to talk to the next level up. And, and you get put on hold. And you're sure they're hoping you're going to hang up. Finally, after being on hold for at least 10 minutes or more, three different times, you get to someone who you hope can make a difference. And they listen patiently and finally in a calm but somewhat patronizing voice, you get the answer that you have come to loathe. Well, yes, we, we hear you. We understand your frustration. But, but it's a process. Don't you hate that? Just, just saying it works up some feelings in me. Yeah, I get it. But what is the process? I followed the process as I was given and nothing's happening. Doesn't that drive you nuts? It's, it's a process. Well, that's true. But unless we know what the process is, it just, it just amps up the frustration. And it gets even more discouraging when I come to the point of being forced to admit that there's still something about me that needs changing. We blamed others for it for long enough. 
and have finally come, become afraid that maybe what needs changing is me. Which one of us has not come to the point of recognizing that there's, there's at least something about us that we need to change? We believe there's a God factor to that change and engaging God seems to make a difference for a while, but over time we begin to wonder if it's as big of a game changer as we had counted on. We try to find the, the seminar that will flip the switch, the, the right Bible reading plan that will finally do it. We, we change churches to find the right experience. We finally had enough and open up to someone we've come to respect from a distance and, and we ask them, what am I doing wrong? It's an amiable discussion, but later as we think back, we realize we basically got the same old line. Well, you know, you've got to be patient with yourself. It's a process. But what's the process? As we go into this fall, we're spending five Sundays talking about the process. Not a formula, a process. There's lots of formulas out there and there's some awful lot of good truth in those formulas. But I want to suggest to you that those formulas that work, work to the extent that they help us at that inner process level we talked about last week, that they help us engage in the process of life change that we talked about. At Ellerslie, we, we say that one of our core values is that we believe in a transforming gospel, a gospel that brings and leads to lasting and life-giving change that we long for. But how does that happen? Well, last week, we gave a high-level overview of that process, how it's all about exchanging. Number one, recognized how we, because we're human, have a tendency, as Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 25, to, to exchange the truth of God for a lie. It's the pattern that was established in the garden and imprinted into the DNA of every human being since the first human beings. The lie at the heart of it all is that I can be in control of my own life. We have, we have literally traded places with God. Number two, recognizing that Jesus, God himself in the flesh, offers me an exchange, my faults and failures, for his fullness and fruitfulness for me and in me. I can become a child of God, a full heir with Jesus of all that is his because of what he did on the cross. And the rest of life is continuing to live into that exchange by allowing the life-changing truth about God to expose the lies I continue to believe about God in my heart and, and to do a reverse exchange. My lie for the truth about God, who he really is for me. Behind every sin, the, the gap between where I am and where I think I should be is a lie about God that I believe in my heart that I need to identify and exchange in my heart for the truth of who God is. This last piece means recognizing that to some degree, I am still an unbeliever. What are we to exchange? The truth about God for the lies that we still get drawn into. Now, this paradigm, this way of seeing is not original to me. I, I was introduced to, to it through, uh, through two books, actually. Well, not introduced to it, really, because I think this is sort of how most of us who have learned, uh, who have learned to grow and over the years, this is how we've learned to do it. We just haven't laid it out clearly like this, even in our own minds. Anyway, Two books that, that flesh this out. Little books. Easy books. Number one, Tim Chester. 
you can change. The subtitle is God's Transforming Power for Our Sinful Behavior and Negative Emotions. And the second one, which is a, a, a takeoff of that book, fleshing it out a little bit more in simpler language, Bigger Gospel by Cesar Kalinowski. Learning to, to speak, live, and enjoy the good news in every area of life is the subtitle. These books talk about four basic life-changing truths about God that I need to believe in my heart that sets me free. Free to change those things about our lives that we know we need to change. Number one, God is great. Number two, God is good. Number three, God is glorious. And number four, God is gracious. Those are what, that's what we're going to be talking about the next four Sundays, including today. Today, God is great and the game-changing difference that makes. Not just great and there's a He's a great guy sense. God is great in the sense that God is always, always bigger. Bigger than every problem, bigger than any dream, bigger than every desire that threatens to control me. He is bigger than any person or issue that looms large in my life. God is always bigger. And what sort of general area of unbelief does that address in my life? It's the first set of issues that many of us need to be free from. The issues of control. Control issues. The need to control. The illusion that we are in control. Or the feeling that everything is out of control. Because God is great, I am free from the need to control or worry that things are out of control. So let's talk about control. Anybody with control issues out there? Anybody not with control issues? Control issues surface in so many ways, don't they? Anger and abusive behavior and speech is, is generally a signal that there's something that I haven't yet been able to control in my environment or in other people. Stubbornness, unwillingness to submit, which is a more passive aggressive control technique, just digging my heels. Nope, it's control. Manipulating people, a little more sophisticated and devious way that we go for control. Always being the critic. The person who says, I have the gift of pointing out what's wrong. Control. Anybody with controlling tendencies or, or, or lack of control frustrations? Okay, let's all just say it right now. Just say it out loud, even if you're by yourself. I am an unbeliever. If you can't say it about yourself, you got to know that the person sitting next to you is saying in their mind, yes, you are an unbeliever. Where do control issues surface for you? For me, moving to Alberta has surfaced one of the times they surface for me. Every time I get behind the wheel of a car on Gateway Boulevard or Calgary Trail, which is fairly regularly because this is Alberta and everyone in Alberta has control issues behind the wheel. And I join right in. You're, you're tailgating the guy in front of you, so the guy beside you can't get, get cut in and get ahead of you. Control. You look ahead and see, aha, it may not look like it now, but that's the lane that's going fastest. And so you, you see a little window or you create a window and cut in front of the guy who hasn't tailgated. And, and they honk at you or give you the one finger less than peace sign. It's like, gotcha, get over it. And then within 15 seconds, you realize you got into the wrong lane. And, and the sense of angst starts coming up. 
control. You finally make it to Costco. You get your stuff. You assess which line will get you through the fastest. You analyze the amount of stuff in each cart, and you, and you, and you look for the female teller. Not a male. I got the stats. A female is going to be the fastest, okay? You get into that line, and then you hear that dreaded call, uh, manager to till five, and the stress level starts coming up again, and you look around you and the other tills, and, and they're just methodically cruising through. Finally, you're through. You still got the trip home in worse traffic, and then you get home late, and it's game on, Control Wars version 2.0, right? I remember as a young parent and, and a young pastor, LaDonna and I had decided that we did not want our kids to suffer because they were pastor's kids. No unrealistic expectations. We would let them be kids. And yet we discovered that our kids, our kids had their own control issues. And yet no matter how positive we tried to, to, to be, how many, how many change management principle we used, well, our three-year-old just laid out on the line one night in the middle of this 15-minute get-ready-for-bed routine I don't want anyone to be my boss. I want to be my own boss. Control issues we're born with. And as parents, one of the things we wrestle with is, is am I trying to control my kids so I can get on with my agenda to make me look good, right? Because a huge thing we try to control is how people view us. What is the area in your life now that is surfacing your need to control? Now, we need to clarify something. Control is more than a feeling that I'm responsible. Responsible is good. But when it gets to the point where unless it happens the way I wanted it to, I wanted it to happen, I am frustrated, angry, and defeated. It's become more than I'm responsible. It's I have to control. And when it does work out the way I want, if I'm proud and I need people to give me credit for it, I need people to see that, see, I did it better than so-and-so, I need people to think that it happened because of me. It's control. And so we've exchanged the truth about the greatness of God for the lie that we can control, we need to control. We've come to the point we're still unbelievers. So, are you ready to look at how this, change, this exchange process works? I can't think of any better place in God's word to see both the truth about the greatness of God and at the same time how this exchange process works than the book of Isaiah, chapter 40. So turn there, grab your Bible app and, or, or your Bible and look at Isaiah chapter 40, one of the longest books in the Bible. And let's walk through this chapter. We're going to start at the end of the chapter where it tells us what we will experience when life doesn't deliver like we think it should, and we exchange the lie we tend to believe for the truth about the greatness of God. It's that wonderful pump-me-up statement that most of us have gone to somewhere in the last five months. I've gone there many times. Isaiah chapter 40, beginning at verse 29. He, God, gives strength. Here's how he uses his greatness for me. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary. Young men stumble and fall. But those whose hope is in the Lord or those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. We love that walk and not be faint. 
We love that picture of soaring like eagles, running without weariness, walking without stopping. We hang on to that promise as hard as we can. And when it's not happening for us, what do we do? We fake it, pretending it's working, or we give up on it. Or we go to another seminar that promises to deliver, or we beat ourselves up because we know we're not good enough. But this verse does not just give us a promise. It tells us two things about living in that promise. It tells us who it is that receives it. Who who is it? Those whose hope is in the Lord. Those who wait on God. That's That's a big word in both the Psalms and in the book of Isaiah. We're going to look at it a little bit later. The most interesting thing about that word is that it's a word that comes out of the idea of seeing. Seeing the truth about who God is and what that must, what it has to mean in my circumstances. A truth about God that changes the way I see everything. But this little summary not only tells us who gets the promise, it tells us what the process is for living in that promise. Those who wait on the Lord will, what? They will renew their strength, or as the New English Translation says, will find renewed strength. Not a change of circumstances, that's what we think the game changer is, but strength in our circumstances. But here's where it really gets exciting. That word renew, it's good translation, but it's a word that has to do with this idea of making a trade. A what? An exchange. It, what's, it's what Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 9 when he talks about God's strength in and for my weaknesses. Those whose hope is in the Lord, those who see and focus on what the Lord is, who wait on the Lord, are, are those who see the truth about God and exchange it for the lies we slip into believing. And that's how we come to this business of soaring like an eagle. This statement, those who hope in the Lord will will experience the great exchange, trading up, not just trading off. This statement is a summary of the entire chapter, which talks about this process of exchanging the truth about the greatness of God for our tendency to need to control. So let's, let's walk through this chapter and see this process at work. Chapter 40 begins by saying this, God talking to Isaiah, says, comfort. Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hands double for all her sins. Comfort. Comfort my people. That's, this is a transition point in the book, by the way. The first 39 chapters of this book have been prophecies about how God will deal with the nations that are against his people, but really are against him. The last 27 chapters, beginning in verse 40, are about how God's people are to see see their God when they experience the consequences of their turning away from God. This section from chapter 40 to chapter 66, the end of the book, has been called the servant songs. And much of it refers to what God will do to make coming back to God possible. The exchange God will make in Jesus down the road. And he begins this section to let them know that the consequences that they are going to experience in the next while of being captive 
in Babylon do not change who God is and will be for them. He makes that interesting statement, their sins have been paid for. He's referring to what, hap- what will happen ultimately in Jesus. In chapter 53 of Isaiah, written as if, again, it has already happened, he talks, the, he talks about the great exchange this servant of God will make. Surely, he says, he, Jesus, took up our pain and bore our suffering. He was pierced for instead of our transgressions and crushed instead of our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. That's the great exchange. So back to chapter 40. I I love how Isaiah puts it in his introduction. He says that she has received from the Lord's hands double for all her sins. That's not saying that what they will experience in their captivity, the abuse and control by their captors, that the punishment they will experience will be twice as bad as their offense. That's not what it's saying. That's how sometimes, that's how we sometimes feel, right? Oh yeah, I did something wrong and should experience something. I get it. But this is over at the top. It's vindictive. No, no, no. What it's saying here is that what they will experience and know in their forgiveness When Jesus comes on the scene and restores all things is double. It is multiple times more positive than the amount of negative that we will experience in our circumstances. So this is how Isaiah is telling God's people they are called to live. When their circumstances become beyond their control. They're removed from the land. Their property, the things they've worked for generations to build up, gone. Their status They're now slaves, controlled by their enemies. We're talking control problems times 10. 70 years, actually 70 times 70, probably 70 years in captivity. We're we're sitting here worried about what the coronavirus or what scaremongering reactors to the coronavirus will mean if it takes takes a whole year out of our life. Captivity was going to take 70 years out of their life. Any illusion of control out the window. And God is calling them to live as if it's over. And he has fixed it. It's over and they have it twice as good as ever. By the way, let's add one more layer layer to that. Did you realize that until this point in history, there was no record of any people, any tribe, any people getting back what they lost and returning to their land and having their land back once they were exiled. Captivity was a common thing. Returning from captivity, being restored to former glory, it had never happened. Nobody had ever got back the control of their life that they had before. Well, that they thought they had. But we know it did happen. Those who lived well through this captivity believed it would happen because as as Isaiah will tell them, regardless of the circumstances we are in, God, their God, is still great. The, The words their great King David had penned years earlier, Psalm 145, were still true. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom, but we're, we're getting ahead of ourselves. As we move through this chapter, Isaiah will give them a picture of the greatness of God, but he will also make clear for them and us 
the process of living in light of his greatness, even when we can't see it. Three shifts, three shifts that I have to make in my mind, in my heart, to exchange the lie I tend to believe for the truth about God and his greatness. He will, he will apply these shifts to the truth of the greatness of God, but they're the kinds of internal process we need to make uh, shifts we need to make about every truth of God. Shift number one, beginning at verse three, a voice of one calling in, in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain, and the glory of the Lord will come. It will be revealed and all people will see it together before the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. Prepare the way for the Lord. Prepare the way in your heart to be able to see who God really is. What is the shift I need to make here? I need to make the shift from reacting and demanding to repenting. What is repenting? It is, by definition, a major shift, a turnaround in my heart and my thinking as to how I am seeing things. I love the way Robert Mulholland puts it in his book, The Deeper Journey. Repentance is not being sorry for the bad things I've done. Repentance is being sorry I am the kind of person that does such things, that I am still an unbeliever. It re, it's, it's realizing that my actions, my attitudes, my words are a window on my heart and they reveal what I really believe in my heart about God. What is it we are trying to control? We try to control the results. The results of what we do and experience in life. The, the people, uh, these people Isaiah are writing to are, are going into this period when where there's no way they can control the results. Which Isaiah is saying exactly where they need to be, where we need to be, because if we're willing to look at our hearts, it brings us to the point where we realize that we need to make the shift, the shift, the exchange. Yes, but, but to make the change by recognizing how I am reacting and demanding and repenting. Why repenting? Because the problem with thinking I have to control life ultimately means I have to control God. Isaiah goes on to show what, this, what happens when we make this shift from demanding to repenting. Verse 6, a voice says, cry out. And I said, what shall I cry? All people are like grass, and all their faithfulness, pff, like the flowers in a field. Grass withers, flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The grass, grass withers, the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. You who bring good news to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with the shout. Lift it up. I'm getting ahead of ourselves. I'm too excited. See, you see, the problem is we are too big in our own eyes. All people are like grass, like the flowers of the field. 
The need to control surfaces the truth that the original exchange of the truth of God for a lie, getting deceived into thinking that I am, I can actually be greater than God for myself. I can determine what God should do for my life. Have you ever wondered or had it say to you, you know, you just need to get out of your own way. Repentance is the process of getting out of my own way. By recognizing that my tendency is to make too big a deal of myself. That's why I need control. That's why I think things are out of control. I love the way Tim Keller puts it. It's not thinking less of myself, but thinking of myself less. Why? So I can see, I can really see how great, how big God is. For the rest of the chapter, Isaiah gives this grand, compelling vision of the greatness of God. That when we shift from demanding and repenting, or demanding and reacting to repenting, we have the, the ability to, 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 to the, the repenting of the thinking that we have the ability to control. What is it we focus on? Well, first of all, a summary of his greatness and, and what he offers to do with his greatness for us. Beginning at verse 8, the grass withers, the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. You who bring good news to Zion, go up in a high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up. Do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. And what are they to see when they see God? See, the sovereign Lord comes with power. He rules with a mighty arm. See, his reward is with him. His recompense accompanies him. And in that greatness, what does he do for me? He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers his lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those who are with young. This God who is bigger than everything, in every way, exercise his bigness by taking little me when I recognize my littleness with all of my issues and my incompleteness. And he offers to be my shepherd in and through what he has created and when it's not working out for me, holding me close to his heart. Do you see that God? He calls us to contemplate that God. And as we recognize, read this next section, look not only at what it is he says about God, but at the process, the shift in our normal process he's calling us to make. As we move from reacting to repenting, it prepares the way for the next shift, which is moving from ruminating to contemplating. As we repent of our tendency to see myself and my issues as bigger, what does it cause us to do? To ruminate, to just keep on rehearsing over and over ad nauseum in a negative, self-centered thinking death spiral. And the more we rehearse it, the more we believe how true it is, right? The bigger deal it becomes. But repenting of our own bigness in our own eyes allows me to use that reflecting, deliberating, deliberating gift that I have in a helpful, beneficial way, contemplating the bigness and the greatness 
of God. Verse 12, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hands or with the breath of his hand marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance? Who can fathom the spirit of the Lord or, in, or instruct the Lord as his counselor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him and who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? And who am I? To tell that God what to do. Are you really saying that you are thinking well about your situation? Do you not think that God's thinking must be better? And as you are thinking about how big and powerful that nation is that is going to take you into captivity and control you, do you not think that I am bigger than them? Verse 8. Verse 15, surely the nations are like a drop in the bucket. All the nations, even the ones that you think are going to control you and that will. Surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They're regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. Lebanon is not sufficient for altar fires, nor its animals enough for burnt offerings. Before him, all the nations are as nothing. They are regarded by him as worthless and less than nothing. That's not a statement of value. It's a statement of comparison. With whom then will you compare God? To what image will you liken him? As for an idol, a metal worker casts it and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and fashions it and fashions silver chains for it. A person too poor to present such an offering selects wood that will not rot and they look for a skilled worker to set up an idol that will not topple. Do you not know Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth. And its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground than he blows on them and they wither and a whirlwind weeps them away like chaff. To whom will you compare me or who is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? Who, he who brings out the starry host one by one and calls forth each of them by name because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. Why do you complain, Jacob? Why do you say, O Israel, my way is hidden from God? My cause is disregarded by my God. Do you not know? Have you not heard The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. As I read that section, I often think of my first science class in my first week of grade 8. In a school where where high school started at grade 8, from grade 8 to 12, Everything was big, everything was scary and intimidating, including the learning piece. I still remember my first science class, no longer elementary school. I was warned by my friends who were older, it was going to be hard. It was now the big leagues. The teacher was Mr. Olson, 
who was in his first week teaching in our, own, our, our little town of northern BC, having moved up from Oregon with a booming, commanding voice. He started the whole course with a question, a question that made me cower, a question that everyone had to raise their hand to give an answer to. He said, when you think of the surface of the earth, is it smooth or is it rough? I thought, this is either easy or it's a trick question. He called us to put up our hands if we thought it was smooth or if it was rough. I didn't put up my hand for either because I didn't want to be busted, but I was wrong. He saw that I didn't put up my hand and decided to make an example of me. He pointed at me, hiding in the crowd, and said, what's your name? I told him, and he said, Mr. Fair, what's your answer? I said, well, it's rough. The surface of the earth is rough. Unless you're living on the prairies, everybody knows that the earth is rough. That's obvious. And then he said, wrong answer. Well, he probably didn't say exactly that way, but that's how I felt. And he picked up a ruler from his desk. And he said, if you took the circumference of the earth, 40,000 kilometers, and compressed it into the length of the, this ruler, the surface of the earth would be as smooth as this ruler. I forget what his point was, <laughs> what it is he was trying to teach us. I, I think it was how small and insignificant the earth is relative to the size of the universe, probably. But many times over the years, as I have read Isaiah 40, I have thought of my science teacher pointing me to a truth about the God of the universe that he wasn't even realizing. When I get out of my own way and allow myself to contemplate the bigness and the greatness of the God who created the universe, who wants his greatness, who you, to use his greatness to be my shepherd, to strengthen me, suddenly all of the things that are so big to me, that were such a big deal, that I have to control, that are out of control, seem so small, right? By the way, as we talk about this shift from ruminating to contemplating, what we are taught here is something very important about how we read the Bible what we call God's Word. Do you know how we usually read it? We read it in a way that reveals and actually feeds our tendency to control. Do you realize that? We read it to find out what we can do to gain more control out of life. To find out what we can do to get God. To change things to get the results we need in life. How are we called to read Scripture? Well, to discover God, to learn God, to know God. The first question I always need to ask in reading the Bible is not, what do I have to do? It's, what is this showing me about God, who He is, how He is bigger than what I'm seeing in my world, in myself right now, how He is big for me and what I get to do in light of that? Is, is that how you read the Bible? I, I know I'm doing that well as I discover myself. It's not something I choose to do necessarily. I try to choose to do it, but I know I'm making that shift of ruminating to contemplating when I discover myself making another process shift in my inner being. It's from waiting for God to waiting on God. 
Verse 31, those who what? Whose hope is in the Lord or who wait for the Lord or like the old King James Version says, wait on God. Those, those are all good translations. But there are two reasons I like the translation, wait on God instead of wait for God. Because when I think about waiting on God, I think about God, who it is I'm waiting on, who it is I'm hoping in. When I think about waiting for God, it's the opposite. What I think of is drumming my fingers and waiting for God to do something. No, this is not about waiting for God to do something. That's still on the edge of being controlling, isn't it? When I do this well, what I discover is that this shift of waiting from moving from waiting for God to waiting on God is really all about moving from controlling to resting. Realizing that I have traded my limits for his limitlessness. Resting, not, not in a sit back and do nothing sense, but simply living in the confidence of a God who is bigger, in the strength of a God who is stronger, taking on the responsibility I really need to take on and letting go of the rest, especially how it makes me look, the ultimate self-centered reason we go for control. Let's wrap it up. What should I do when I, when I feel the urge or the need to control? When I need to take those control urges and, and channel them on the one thing I can control. What? I focus on. LaDonna and I have, have always been camera people. And one day while we were on vacation, we, were, uh, we felt we needed to get some kind of an attachment for our camera, but we didn't know where the nearest camera shop was. So we did, for the first time, what I had heard you could do. I held up my phone and I said, Hey, Siri, where is the nearest camera shop? <laughs> and Siri said to me, What's wrong with the one in your hand? Cheeky little thing. Sometime later, we had a discussion about cameras with, our, uh, with LaDonna's nephew, who happened to work for the, one of those companies that are trying to make cameras irrelevant. We were telling him why we still needed a camera, how our camera was still better than the ninth letter in the alphabet phone. A and he said, you don't get it. Where's your camera? Let me, let me see your camera. Uh, well, it's at home. Or, it's in the car or wherever. He shook his head and said, that's what I mean. The best camera is the one in your hand. Your camera does you no good. If it's sitting at home and you forget it, well, one of the problems with the one in our hand at that time was that it was simply autofocus. For us, it was a game changer when the next ninth letter in the alphabet phone we bought gave us the ability to set the focus. That's what Isaiah is calling us to do. We have an autofocus that always focuses on the nearest thing, the biggest thing in our minds. We need to press where we want to focus. And focusing on the greatness of God is the one, is, is the game changer we're looking on, looking for. To shift our focus from what we think is the big deal to who has proved himself to be the bigger deal always. So, what is it that is looming large for you right now? 
Is it something negative happening to you? Is it something that you feel is not happening for you? Is it a dream you are pursuing at all costs? A desire that is controlling you? Will you take some time right now, this afternoon, to reset the focus? Your camera has the ability to do it. Will you hear Isaiah saying to you, here is your God. God is great. So why do I think I need to control? Oh Lord our God, we thank you that we have evidence all over the place as we look around us that there is a God who is great. A God who is always bigger. And we thank you for Jesus who has done what's needed for us to be able to take the, the, the focus off ourselves and has traded our weakness for his strength, has traded our failures for his fullness. And Father, I pray that you will help each of us this week to turn on the ability to focus not on the thing that looms large, but on the greatness of the one who offers to be great for us. In Jesus' wonderful name, amen.